You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Kate Campbell, how are you going? I'm good, Owen. It's good to be back for another Q&A for March this time. Yes, it is a divine day here in Victoria. Kate Campbell, do you have an Amex card with Buy Now Pay Later attached? No, but I heard CBA is going to start offering them on your debit card. So I do have a CBA debit card, I believe, somewhere in the bottom of a drawer. So maybe I technically do. Well, it's something for your back pocket, maybe. No, I just, we are making a bit of fun here on the Australian Finance Podcast because that's what we're all about. Don't get a credit card with a buy now, pay later attached. Anyway, Kate, we've got Q&A. So this is the fun part of the month. I noticed you did a great podcast with Paul Benson last week or the week before. I had a listen to it and I thought it was really good. Yeah, well, thanks. I I ditched you for that one, but um, you ditched me the the week before that for the ACDC one. So I think we're fair now. Yeah, I think that. Just about sums it up. But no, I thought it was really good. And I, you know, I, I think Paul I just speaks so well, fellow podcaster, mm. he speaks really well. One thing that I did notice in the way that he speaks, and it, he and I share the same view on this, by the way, so I'm not saying I disagree with him, that he said, you know, you do, it does cost a fair bit of money to get a good financial advisor in Australia. Mm. And that's such a shame. Yeah. But hey, that's probably why this podcast gets downloaded a lot, <laughs> uh, is because people can't get advice and it does cost a fair bit of money to get good advice. So, Hey, you know, we're going to just teach some people how to take care of their finances today with some Q&A. Yeah. Yeah, and I had a friend recently who was just asking for a bit of info on financial advisors and I sent them a lot of sort of blogs and books and sites to read because I said it's so expensive so you should be as prepared as possible before you go and meet with a financial advisor and find the right person for you because 
if you don't sort of know the basics, it's really hard to know what you want out of them and what you want them to help you with. So that was probably my recommendation just to my friend, just read as much as possible for a few months and make sure you sort of got a solid foundation. And so many financial advisors now, like Paul, putting out content online, they're sharing it on Instagram or their blog or a podcast, or some of them have books as well. So give that content a read before you um, go to the meeting and it'll just give you some sort of understanding. And even if you're going to see a financial advisor, you can sort of check them out online because they'll they'll often have written something or been interviewed before. So you can sort of get a gist of how they talk, how they answer questions. Is that the right kind of fit for you? So that's kind of a, a free tip <laughs> for today. It is. Yeah. Good one. If you haven't listened to that episode and you're thinking that you may need to outsource some of your responsibility or all of your responsibility to a financial planner, go ahead and listen to that episode. Kate, we're going to answer questions. And that means that unlike Paul, we do not give personal financial advice. No. So even if we answer a question that sounds like your situation or is a question that you may have asked, we are definitely not giving you personal financial advice. And we're not just saying that as, you know, just to get our jail free card on our end. We only give our general financial advice at the RAS group, but we also say it to protect you. Don't just take one thing that we say in this Q&A segment and be like, oh, that's gospel, because it might not apply to you. There are so many risks, taxes, a whole heap of different stuff that could come into your personal situation that Kate and I simply don't know about. So as always, if you're confused or you're just not sure, go and see a financial advisor, a trusted financial advisor. So Kate, I thought to kick this week off, we had our our retreat for... The Rust Group last week, we went down to Phillip Island of all places. Mm. You can see some photos on Twitter and Instagram. But we had a conversation in the van on the way home. We talked about popular Aussie slang words and we come up with our favorite slang words. I'm just going to throw some words out at you. Yeah. And it turns out Owen's vocabulary is a lot bigger than mine when it comes to slang. I think we had a very different uh, upbringing. Mate, I was growing out on the farm. I was up on the farm, you know, whoop, whoop. And you were in, in a city chick. Anyway, so I'm just going to throw some of Australian English at you, and then maybe you can interpret it for our Queen's English speaking uh, listeners and also people that have maybe had never been to Australia. So if I was to say heaps, what does that mean? A lot. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, good one. All right. Now interpret this sentence for me, this phrase. Owen lives out whoop whoop. Owen lives in the middle of nowhere and he bought a tiny shack that he's having to renovate. <laughs> That's about right. All right. How about if we're driving um, down in the inner city and I say, oh, just chuck a Yui. A U-turn. Yep, a U-turn. Good one. All right, here's one for you. It's chockers. It's full. There's a lot going on. Yeah, it's full. So you would say like the esky is chockers. Yeah. It's chockers of tins. Yeah, something like that. All right, one last one. Only a drongo wears budgie smugglers in winter. Someone that's crazy. I, I did get called that a bit by my dad growing up, so. A drongo? Yeah. What is, it, what is a drongo? Do you know? know? Someone silly, someone crazy. Yeah, a fool. I mean, only a fool wears Speedos in winter. I wasn't using Urban Dictionary when I was a kid. So I just sort of like lived with these words without knowing what they meant. I had a few others. It's, it, I was trying to find some uh, Aussie slang that applies to finance, and there probably weren't any. Maybe bludger is about as close as it gets for Aussies. But anyway, now onto some real questions, Kate, that our uh, wonderful listeners and community on Facebook have sent in. By the way, there were heaps on Facebook, right? Yeah, there's definitely more than one episode worth and a few questions that we definitely would need an expert to answer. They're probably a little bit beyond 
my skill set right now. But um, yeah, we've got so many great questions. It's great to see everyone getting involved and sharing their questions and supporting each other as well, which is, I guess, what we're aiming with that community is that people can bounce ideas off each other and share their highs and lows of their own financial journey. Um, I guess a lot of the questions this week actually sort of themed around dividends and tax, interestingly enough. And I guess we are starting to approach tax time. So people do have that in mind, but I'm happy to kick it off with the first question if you like. Sure, go for it. Yeah. So the first one was what happens to DRP, so dividend reinvestment plans, when you don't have enough to DRP? Oh, so I think we're going to need to break down some of that jargon. Yes. Pardon me. A dividend reinvestment plan is when you choose to receive uh, your dividend, which is normally paid in cash, like a check or direct deposit, you choose to receive that in new shares. Hmm. Or if you're in a managed fund or an ETF, you choose to receive it in new units. So it just adds to your brokerage account. It adds to your investment. Uh, Kate, how do you elect to take up a DRP? How do you elect to make that your option? What do you, where do you have to go? Okay, so for shares and ETFs, things you're buying for your brokerage account, you can usually head straight to the registry. In most cases, that's some like link market services, computer share, boardroom, and there's a few other smaller ones around. And you'll be able to just type in your holder identification number and your postcode and a few other details, set up your account. And then you can just go in and just hit a button that you want your income from that company reinvested. And it's also to note that not all companies allow you to or offer dividend reinvestment plans. So I think a lot of them do now. Most of them them I've seen and ETFs will offer them. So it's a good way to... Most ETFs do, yeah. Yeah, it's a good way to invest on a keep reinvesting that income on a regular basis without having to think about it at all because sometimes those dividends are so small you might just have $50 trickling into your bank account and you don't even notice it. But if you have that on a reinvestment cycle over 20 years, you could suddenly have thousands of dollars getting reinvested each year and that's really going to make a difference over time. Um, So they are are quite a popular tool for building wealth over a long term. Okay, so you said imagine if you just got like forty or fifty dollars in yeah. your dividend normally, and you choose to take that as a DRP. Let's say in a very simple situation, you are expecting to get a forty dollar dividend, mm-hmm. forty dollars, but the cost of the ETF. You know, when you go into your brokerage account, it's got a price. Um, the the cost of getting one new unit in the ETF is say fifty dollars. So we have a fifty dollar ETF, but we're only getting forty dollars in dividends. But we want that dividend to become, uh, like, to be reinvested. So, how does that work if the dividend is not as much as the, the ETF itself? Yeah. So, in Australia, if you wanted to get that reinvested, because we don't do fractional shares, uh, like you might have seen in some of the US brokerage accounts, if you don't have enough in your dividend to reinvest in another share or unit, because it's sort of ten or twenty dollars short, then they hold it until the next. Uh, dividend distribution is paid and then they'll allocate you a share slash unit. So essentially they just hold that money until the time you reach enough to be able for them to be able to give you a whole new share or unit. Um, so it can be challenging for some of the, I don't know, the CSLs and Cochleas and some of the ETFs that have a quite a high unit price. It can take a very long time before you accrue enough if you have a small balance to actually get issued a new unit or share. So I guess that's that's one of the downsides and it can be challenging if you have something that's much larger like that. They're just holding on your money. You don't get any interest until you um, accrue enough to be issued a new share or unit. 
Okay, I'm going to throw something at you, Kate. We have a really good pizza shop down the road. Um, I live in a suburb in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne called Upway, and the Upway Pizza Shop, lovely. George runs it. Anyway, if I have ten bucks and I go down there and I say, George, how much can I get for ten bucks? He'd probably say, Owen, that doesn't get you a pizza. It might get you half. He would say, you know, I can take that ten dollars for you today, and then if you come back tomorrow with another ten dollars. I'll give you a full pizza. Yep. He is effectively the share registry and I am the investor who doesn't have enough to buy one full piece. So I, he'll hold on to it for me. And that's pretty much the same thing. Now, I, you could imagine that if you are going down to the pizza shop with a few dollars every day, you probably don't want to do that because you have to trust them. I mean, that's not, not normally an issue, but you have to trust them. You probably want to keep the money for yourself. Yeah. So maybe you can just work it out what you're probably going to get. You know, it could be little cents on the dollar. Sometimes, like it could be you have enough for 11.25 shares mm. uh, in the DRP, so that 2.5 stays with them. But if it's something like, if it's a bigger share price, you might even just choose to take it. You talked about compounding before, and I agree, it's a good idea to use DRPs in the right situations. But at any one time, you can just take it as cash and reinvest it somewhere else if you want to as well. So you do have that option. You don't have to have the DRP forever. Yeah. You can turn it on and off um, any time. I think it's usually just before the ex-dividend date that you have to make that Yeah, you'd want to do decision. it before then. Yep. Um, it's also good to note, so just say you had a, a $10 dividend and the share price is $50, so it was just held by the registry. If you then sell that share before you accrue enough to be issued a new share, often it'll say it in their product disclosure statement or their fine print or their website, they'll donate that money. Um, so there's often policies like that where if um, yeah if you sell before you get issued a dividend they'll donate the money sometimes they pay it to you it does depend it's definitely challenging for them because like an administration wise it's hard to keep this all on their books so that's it yeah that's why there's a lot of like, dividends floating around and if you go and um, put in your TFN in I think it's the Money Smart there's a search website for lost money there's often dividends that are owed to people that are just sort of floating around um, in the government coffers um yeah so interesting and i think there's a lot of contention as well about drps and whether they make accounting and tax returns a lot harder over a long period of time i think they do to be honest because you still need to report it right so it's a it's an interesting one anyway it's speaking of tax and drps making life difficult yes. on people we got a pretty complicated question mm. number two and i had to ask you what the heck this is because i've heard about them but i didn't know this is actually the name for them so I'll maybe read the question, then you can explain exactly what's going on. So the question goes is to the effect, Licks, I'm interested in the Licks and the benefits of Licks, which is a listed investment company. So it's just like a share on the ASX, but it's actually a company that invests in other companies. Mm. So that's how you can understand it. And in particular, the risks of DSSPs, how DSSPs either help or hinder a company. I can't figure it out from the company's perspective if they're good or a Peter, pain in the ass. I had to work out what that was too. Yeah. So we've got LICs, LICs, we've got DSSPs, and we've got PITAs. There's a lot going on there, Kate. What the heck is a DSSP? Yeah, I, I'd heard about them before, but I, I'd never um, used myself, and I don't know anyone that's sort of directly using them that I know in my personal life. But I, I do know a few fire bloggers have written about them before. So it's a dividend share substitution plan also known as a bonus share plan. And 
all that I could find was about three listed investment companies in Australia that offer it. Most commonly, it's AFIC. So I believe AFIC's one of the companies that the Barefoot Investor talked about in his book, Yeah, um, which is probably why there's a bit of um, knowledge about it there. But AFIC's been going around for a really long time and I'm not sure how many holdings they have, but it's similar. They're just one massive company that invests in lots of the top Australian companies that are listed on the exchange. And you can buy units in that company through the through your brokerage account. But it, it's quite different to an ETF as well. Uh, which we'll get to. There's another question actually on the difference between a LIX and ETF oh, further wow. on. We're flying with LIX today. We're, we're flying. But so this DSSP, bonus share plan, from what you were sa- saying to me just before, it sounds like a dividend reinvestment plan. It almost is exactly the same thing. Mm except there's one tax difference. So where we talked about a DRP, even if you get your dividend as shares, you still need to report that as income. With this one, and this is only for a few licks on the ASX, so we've got three on our list, or three, yep. I don't know how many licks there are. There'd be probably more than 50. So it's not. this doesn't apply to everything. A DSSP or bonus share plan has some sort of tax advantage. So what you found on the ATO website was a little bit interesting, Kate. Can you just try and explain just generally what it means? Yeah. So the the LIC list investment company itself, I think this happened back in 2011, 2012. They applied to the tax office for a special ruling. So it's like a 20-page document from the ATO that's like, this is our decision on this, this particular tax thing. And essentially, instead of getting your distribution paid as cash or reinvested, like we just talked about before, you get allocated additional shares. And the way that works is that it changes the cost base, but you don't have to declare it as income. So if normally if you get a dividend or you reinvest that dividend, either way, you're still going to have to declare it on your tax return and pay income tax. But with this special plan, you don't have to pay income tax when you receive these bonus shares. And the only time you'll pay the tax is once you eventually sell the entire holding and then or part of the holding, and you'll have to pay capital gains, assumingly more capital gains than you would have paid otherwise. But you don't get franking credits. So I guess that's one thing. So I, I all I could see online was it sort of recommended for people, well, not recommended, it can be helpful for people investing for miners in really high marginal tax brackets and things like that. But it does seem a little bit more complicated. I mean, you definitely need an accountant to work out that Hey, one. there's another question on that. You're getting ahead of us here, Kate, talking about accountants. But um, so basically, if you're earning a lot of dough, which is Australian for cash, if you're earning a lot of dough, like 180000 150000 like you wake up in the morning, you roll over, there's a $50 note you forgot about. That's what we're talking about here. If you're that type of person, you should probably speak to your accountant about the advantages of maybe this type of thing and they can look at the tax ruling. But it sounds like because you're reducing the current income, so your current income tax, you could buy these and then elect for one of these uh, bonus share plans and then it just gets added to your investment, which will be taxed, but not this year. It will be taxed in the future when you sell it. And so you might earn a really good wage now, but in 10 or 15 years or 20 years, when you inevitably sell it, your income might be lower. And for those tax gurus amongst us, you will know that capital gains tax happens when you sell something, but it's based on your tax rate at the time. So if you're a high roller now, maybe you're waking up with 50s next to you. In 20 years, you're waking up with like five cent pieces. 
And at that time, you're like, okay, it's time to sell because of my tax will, bill will be lower. So this is something that's really interesting. I'm actually going to look into this, but there's an ATO webpage and there's a tax ruling on it. So go check that out. Speak to your accountant. Really good question. Technical. Thanks for um, educating me on that one too, Kate. Yeah, I'll, I'll put all the resources I found in the show notes if anyone's mm. interested in exploring it more because there's not too many resources online apart from the lick pages themselves, the ATO rulings, and a few um, very keen bloggers who have actually deep dived into it. So I'll definitely include those in the show notes for you. Yep, I reckon that would be great, mate. So Kate, number three, what is question number three? I feel like this is right down your alley. So pros and cons of getting a side hustle versus uh, getting paid overtime. So working overtime to earn some extra cash. Okay. First of all, what's a side hustle? Yeah. Okay. So side hustle would be something you do on the side of your main source of income to earn a bit of extra cash. It could be anything from gardening in your local community, tutoring some local high school kids. You might be selling an ebook online, doing some copywriting. Maybe you teach violin Working lessons. Air Tasker. Yeah, Air Tasker. Anything like that. Violin. That's a good one. Yeah, I played viola in high school. I don't know why I said violin, but anyway. Did you ever did you ever teach someone viola? No, I needed a lot of teaching though. What is a viola is a viola the big It's a little one? bit bigger than a violin. It goes a little bit deeper. I don't even know the right terminology anymore. But um yeah. Essentially because you can get extra money in many fields, people can work overtime or extra hours to earn a bit more cash. So yeah, I think the first thing to do is compare the dollars and look at the sort of the monetary, how much is it going to, what sort of side hustle could you do? And is the money you could make from that worth it compared to working some extra hours in your additional, in your existing field of work? Um, and just sort of, so you can look at it from the money side there. Isn't there a tax issue if you work overtime, like you earn extra money? I assume you pay tax on your, that income too. You pay tax. Yeah, you pay tax, more tax. You got to pay yeah. tax on your side hustle income as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, some people who get like a lot of money, like overtime and stuff, maybe your, your tax is withheld at a higher rate. People think, uh, <laughs> I love this. When people say, oh no, I'm taxed so much that I shouldn't work more. And I'm thinking, what? That makes no sense. The only reason you pay tax is because you earn more mm-hmm. and then you get most of it back when you, anyway. Um, so people who say that don't believe them <laughs> when they say it's not worth it after tax because it almost always is. You only get taxed if you earn more. So you would be taxed more if you did extra work. Just keep that in mind. But with a side hustle, there are different ways to set up over time yeah. that you know you can be a bit more advantaged in that way. So I just wanted to – sorry, I just interrupted your oh, flow, no Kate. But, but <laughs> yeah, I do that all the time. I know I'm sorry. But yeah, that's something to keep in mind is that, yeah, your tax withholding might be higher, but you could claim that back at tax time. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you do have a side hustle, you're going to have to keep good records and you'll have Mm -hmm. to pay tax on that too. You will. Yeah. So I guess um, one of the things that sort of came across my mind was would doing the extra work, working overtime um, actually help you in your industry? Is it going to help you work towards a promotion more quickly? Is it going to help build your skills up? So depending what you're doing, um, the extra work could be more beneficial than not. So that's something I would think about. And I also sort of stress that don't think you have to have a side hustle. I know they're pretty trendy uh, things to have, but um, it could really, in your situation, make much more sense for you just to do some extra work in your existing industry instead of try and come up with some new idea or new way to earn money on the side. Yeah. Um, 
a friend of mine um, is a plumber. He realized that he had pretty good skills. Didn't really love plumbing that much, but he loved um, taking care of his dog. So he built his dog a dog kennel. And my other mate was like, hey, that looks like a pretty cool dog kennel. Can you make me one? Mm. He made a dog kennel for him. And then he took photos of it, put it on Instagram. People started saying, geez, that's a really cool dog kennel. <laughs> and then he just started creating this business. And now he employs people. This is only a couple of years down the track. He employs people. doing really well. Oh, wow. And the reason I bring that up is because he's happier now. Mm. So uh, one of the things that I said to you before we jumped on air was the happiness factor. Yeah. Does it make you happier doing something else? Some people hate work. And the thought of overtime is scary. Mm. Think about what makes you happier too. Because oftentimes money follows happiness. Mm. And if you become really good at something, you know, the money can take care of itself or you might just be okay with not earning money because it makes you so happy. So that's something to keep in mind too. Like if I went and worked at the cafe down the road, it wouldn't be because I'm making more money because I want to be out there and speaking with people and saying day and whatever. Um, so that's something to keep in mind as well. It's just, yes, it's good to, to weigh these two things up, but it's okay to choose something that makes you happier and you earn less. Mm. Um, I just wanted to bring that in because money is a thing that often overrides happiness and it sh- in my opinion it shouldn't. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, and, and you can think about different side hustle ideas. I, I th- I'll try and include it in the show notes, but I put together a list of 50 different ideas a few months ago that I included yeah, in the buyer course. But that's a sort of just a PDF that you could print and just have a look through those ideas and there's heaps of resources online. Um, and just explore some different ideas before jumping in the deep end. Um, and mm, so yeah, don't spend too much. <laughs> I know some people get way over their way over in. Uh, I don't even know what I'm saying here, but um, way they get yeah they get way ahead of <laughs> way themselves. ahead of themselves and spend thousands of dollars trying to set up this side hustle and they don't even know if there's demand in their community for it. So I just but try it. Yeah, give it a shot. So Barefoot in his book talked about a trapeze idea. You don't let go of the one trapeze until you've got the next one mm. to grab onto, right? Warren Buffett says, don't test the water with both feet. These are all really good analogies to think about. Put that in your mind. Don't test the water with both feet. You wouldn't just walk up to a creek and uh, jump in with both feet without knowing what's underneath the surface. So you dip your toe in, you, f- you move your foot around, you find out what's going on, and then you know it's safe to get to let go and, and jump in. And it's the same with work. You know, one of the worst mistakes anyone ever makes is giving up their income. Yeah. Now, you might think that, oh, yeah, you know, I've got a hundred grand in the bag. I can afford to take a risk. Yeah, that's true. But as soon as that tap turns off, it becomes not so the money is one thing, but it's what happens to your psychology that totally changes. Mm. You, you all of a sudden look at your money as a source of like, like you, it's anxiety. It's like, oh my God, my balance has gone down. This happens with retirees. They hit the retirement. They punch out that for the last time. They hit the retirement clock and immediately they're interested in super. 65 years have passed. They've never been interested in super. And the reason why they start checking their account every day is because that's what they rely on. And so the moment that you turn off that tap is the moment that you start to get a lot of anxiety or a lot of people start to get anxiety. So keep something going. Maybe you can say to your boss, hey, if I you know, the side hustle has started. It's starting to bring in some money. It's bringing in a couple of hundred bucks a week. Hey, Mr. or Mrs. Boss, I'm going to take a day off every week while I do this one day a week. And then it becomes two days, then three days. And you can try and balance it that way. But please, yeah, it's very, it seems very sexy to go out and get a side hustle at the moment. Mm. And I think a lot of employers are really flexible um, nowadays, post-COVID with working arrangements. Um, just check you don't have something in your contract that says you can't 
do any similar work in the same industry or something like that, which might um, make your side hustle idea a little bit more challenging. Yeah, just do it anonymously. Um, <laughs> no, so uh, question number four, Kate. And by the way, you mentioned the fire course in that last question. You mentioned that there were so many side hustle ideas inside the fire course. How many people have we enrolled into the fire course, Kate? Yeah, we've just crossed past the thousand student mark, which is really exciting. Thousand enrollments. Yeah. That's wonderful. If you're listening to this, enroll now if you haven't already. Yeah, it's it's very exciting to put something that you were just this was a, just a side project during COVID that finally <laughs> put it out into the in the world and actually have people taking the course and learning from it. So I don't know, it was quite a quite the first time I've ever done that. So it's been really, really fun to see people signing up. Yeah, it's really rewarding. You put in many months of work. So congrats. A thousand is just awesome to think of all the lives that you might be able to influence for the better than their families or children or friends is really profound. So well done to you. Number four, question number four, is it worth staying invested in a fund that has closed to new investors and in brackets and been replaced by similar funds in the same company? So this might happen if you are invested in an ETF or more likely a managed fund, Mm. and the managed fund says, we're not taking new investors. You can still stay invested. We're not taking new investors. Or they transition you to a new fund. They say, we're closing this one, and we're going to put you in this one over here, which is very similar, maybe with a few more for ease. (laughs) What do you do? Like, Is it worth staying invested in a situation like that? I guess when I read that question, my brain immediately jumped to manage funds because I have we have seen a few in the industry in the last sort of 12 months announce that either maybe they're closing to new investors because maybe they've become way too popular and they only want to manage a small amount of money or they're closing one fund because it's not sort of cost effective for them to run and moving you into a different product. So I think that's where my brain jumped to. So Yeah, it's more likely than an ETF. Yeah, so my I guess my first question is, firstly asking them why are they doing what they're doing. There can be some really good reasons why they stop taking additional funds or there could be some really bad reasons. So I guess the first one I was sort of asking, is the fund manager leaving? Um, If you've invested in a particular strategy over time, that's probably a good one to find out. And if they are closing the fund, is it due to sort of really good or really bad performance? Yeah, that's normally what happens. Yeah, and we've seen some small cap funds close to new investors over the last 12 months just because the market's had a great run, they've been a really popular because they've done so well and they only want to manage a couple of hundred million dollars. Oh, that's a lot of money. But anyway. It sounds like a lot, yeah. but in the scheme of fund managers, they can be ones that have billions of dollars, mm. right? So, and yeah, yeah there's, just to, to, to drill in on this point, Kate, if they're a good fund manager, this is what we used to do back at Zenith, if they're a good fund manager, we want them to close. Mm at a certain point because when they get so much money, eventually it's very hard to manage that money. Um, and so you want them to close before it gets to that point so they can maintain the returns. And the other reason is if they have bad performance. Kate, I'll throw it over to you. What happens when they have bad performance? Yeah, so sometimes if a fund's underperformed over the last few years when the rest of the market hasn't, they might have a lot of investors pulling their money out and suddenly a fund that used to be half a billion dollars maybe is now like a hundred million dollars. And so the management fee that the fund's able to take to pay for its staff and analysts and office isn't so great anymore. So they might decide it's not cost effective to run this fund. 
we have to pay all these licensing fees, all these staff fees. It's just not worth our time. So they might decide to close the fund for good and they might offer to put you into a new product that they already have or they might be launching a new fund. So that might mean you end up in something that you, if you wanted to be in small cap before and suddenly you're in a large cap fund, well, that might not be what you wanted originally. So I guess that's that's probably one of the reasons I'd look at if they were closing it and moving you to something else. Is it because of underperformance? And do you actually want to be in the fund that they are suggesting to move you across into? Yeah, that's a good one. So there are good and bad reasons. Find out why and then listen to this question or that question, our answer to it, sorry. Uh, So number five, it seems that to maximize compounding, we love compounding, (laughs) it would be good to put all slash most money in a single product, something like a balanced fund or an ETF. Is it better to spread your investments over multiple more specific funds that together achieve a similar diverse spread of assets slash asset classes. So I guess it's like, you know, having one that does it for you or many that do the similar thing. Mm. Kate? I, I think this question will become more and more common because some of the big ETF providers in Australia are launching pre-mixed diversified ETFs. Um, some of them have four-letter stock codes, so you might know what I'm talking about here, but I just saw some launch diversified pre-mixed ETFs that ha- are all ethical. Um, I think that was a launch today or yesterday. So they're just ETFs are popping out uh, all over the place at the moment. So I guess the question is there, do you put all your money into one pre-mixed diversified ETF that might give you exposure to Australia, property, US, the rest of the world, emerging market sort of things, and that's all in one ETF pre-done for you? Or do you want to invest in one ETF that covers the top 200 Australian shares, one ETF that covers maybe uh, industrial property, one ETF that covers emerging markets? So I guess, yeah, it's that question of do you build an ETF portfolio, which maybe have three to five different ETFs in it um, and invest in them on a regular basis, or you just pick one pre-diversified one and just keep putting money into that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. We've got something similar to the last question, which was going to be a rapid fire. So horses for courses, of course, is what I'd say. We, inside our uh, RASC ETF service, we've designed four different ETF models. So we've gone and looked at all the ETFs and we've picked you know, the ETFs that we think are the best for whatever they do. And then we've made four portfolios out of those. So you know, you can kind of mix and match. And the reason we did four and not one, mm. is because everyone likes it a little bit differently. And I think with this, there are benefits to one or the other. For example, let's use a diversified ETF, which is very popular at the moment. It's called VDHG. That's the ticket code, the Vanguard Diversified High Growth. You could just buy that, and that would give you exposure. So that one ETF invests in other ETFs. And those other ETFs, there's ones that invest in Australian shares. So you get some Australian shares. You get some international shares, you get some bonds. So you buy one and it gives you kind of the basket of baskets. And then the other one, the other way to do that would be to pick your own ETFs. So if I'm not you know, being biased towards Vanguard here, you might have the A200 shares ETF from BetaShares, the IVV, I think that's from iShares, mm. I think, which is the US stocks one. And you might have IAF, and I can't remember who runs that, but I think it might be iShares as well. Could be wrong. Don't please don't call me up by shares. Um, which is a bond ETF. So you could then mix and match your own, yeah. right? 
Now, there are benefits and weaknesses to both of these. Firstly, if you get a diversified fund, like the, the VDHG one I just said to you, is the high growth version. Um, you might not be willing to take all the risk that the high growth one has, so you might have to look for something else. So it might not fit you perfectly. And then if you were to do your own ETFs, what happens if in five years you want to sell one of those? Mm. Well, you might incur capital gains tax or if the fees for that ETF go up, you might want to get out. Again, you have to cop the high fees or incur capital to gains tax. So there are no like, oh, and another one, which is a really good one, Kate, and it's something interesting is a lot of people don't know how to uh, rebalance. Yeah, I was actually going to say that. It, it does, using a pre-done one makes it very hard if you want to rebalance or slightly adjust your risk profile as you uh, get closer to retirement as well. Yeah, so that's where you have to be careful about what you choose. Mm. But like, like, so which one is right for you? You might end up, this sounds silly, you know, we think we want one diversified ETF. Let's say you're a 40-year-old, you want one diversified ETF today, you want a high growth one because you've got 15 years until you're planning to retire. But then by the time you get to retirement, you might have like three or four different diversified funds mm. because as you've got closer to retirement, you've got your timeline has got shorter and shorter, so you've gone less risk. But the VDHG and all those diversified ETFs, the ethical ones that you're referring to are from beta shares. Um, so they're the only two that offer diversified funds in Australia and ETFs, but um, they do the rebalancing for you. So it depends. You would have to look at the PDS, always read the PDS, and it'll tell you what, or how much is invested in Aussie shares, international shares, bonds, et cetera. And then it will automatically adjust at a predetermined date. So it will say, we're going to rebalance to the, to the right allocation. Whereas as an individual investor, let's say you own two shares ETFs and one bond ETF. After five years, the shares ETFs you would expect grow faster than the bond ETF. But then you're out of balance because the two have grown faster than the other one. So then you have to make a choice. Do you sell some of the shares incurring capital gains tax or do you add to the bond mm. investment? But that might not be the most effective use of your capital. So you've got to kind of, there's, there's pros and cons to both of these. Always take notice of the fees. It doesn't matter if you have five ETFs or 50 ETFs, if the fees and the, the returns are the same, um, it doesn't make a difference. It's just what you prefer. Just keep the fees low. Tax, um, we mentioned that. If you chop and change, like if you're like, oh, this day I want this ETF, next day I want that ETF, you're going to pay more tax. You're going to pay more fees. So think about it before you do it. Finally, Kate, a core and satellite approach, which is what we've talked about before. And this is something that we'll get to in the last question. You don't have to choose one. I love this. If you had to do this, <laughs> which one would you choose? And my first response is, I don't have to do it. So I'll just have it all. Yeah. You can have all of them. You can have the diversified funds. You can have the tactical funds. You can have shares. You can have property. You can have gold. You can have Bitcoin. You can have it all if you want to. <laughs> so don't make, don't believe that you have to choose one. And what I'd say is, you can build a core portfolio around your diversified ETFs. So you build that up as kind of like the long-term bottom drawer type stuff. And then you can have your satellites, those little things that go around the outside, shares. Hell, if you're interested in Bitcoin, sure, I'm not. But if you are, go and do that. But keep it as a small little position that goes around the outside. Mm. And then you can change over time. So great question. It doesn't really matter. It's horses for courses. So yeah. Kate, the next question, I'll hand it over you. I've just been... <laughs> One of Owen's favorite topics. Anyway, okay, so we're getting back to tax again. So there are two really good questions here. So the first one is, at what stage should you consider getting a tax agent to handle your tax returns? Um, and I'll also sort of 
attach that on with the second question, which is, do I need to provide income statements as my portfolio increases or only when those investments are sold? So I guess I'll start with that question. Yeah, my answer (laughs) here, which is something I've learned the hard way over the last few years, as soon as you start getting past that very vanilla financial situation where you have one main source of income, you don't, if you side, if you have a side hustle, it's very sort of straightforward and simple. Maybe you're claiming a few things for work expenses, but they're pretty straightforward. Um, your super's paid for your work. If you do any extra contributions, you do them for your work. And maybe you've invested in some shares or ETFs, but you haven't started to get into property or managed funds and things like that. I think it's fine to do it yourself. If you get any more complicated than that and you start adding businesses onto it, you start becoming a freelancer, you've got multiple sources of income, you're making extra contributions yourself to super, uh, you get, oh, what did Owen add? Inheritance or you get a divorce. Inheritance. Yeah, anything, as soon as you start getting a, a complicated situation, I think it makes it much more challenging to do it yourself. I mean, of course you can do it, but you're probably much more likely to get it wrong and it might take a lot more time. I mean, once you've really got to weigh up the time, like if I was having to spend more than 10 hours to sort out my tax return, suddenly you go, oh, it's actually probably worth it to get a professional involved. If you can do it in one or two hours, then yeah, just do it yourself. That's probably my perspective. What about you, Owen? I'll I'll answer your question with a question, Kate. What's the cost of good advice? You don't have to pay a fee to the ATO. You don't end up with a massive tax bill. That That's kind of the scary thing. I, I've always heard the horror stories of like the DIY tax method and you you completely stuff it up. And then suddenly in three years when a tax agent looks at it, they realize you owe like 10 grand to the tax office. Yeah. I, and that's a great answer. I love that because there are some risks to doing it yourself. Mm. The old picture on a guy with a hammer and a nail into his computer trying to do his tax return. I would say the cost of good advice is nothing. And this goes for all walks of life. I think if you get good advice, it pays for itself. Mm. And so like to an extent, of course. So let's just, I'll be a bit more realistic for your answer here. If you earn more than 25K, which is just a bit over the tax-free threshold, you know, you you probably don't, even up to 30K, maybe even a bit more, you probably don't need to see an accountant, to be honest. If you know, like you've got your pay slip, um, your pay, PAYG summary from your employer in J- July, uh, you know that you can claim a little bit for charity, et cetera, et cetera. That's fine. Just go ahead and jump on is it e-tax on MyGov and do it yourself. If you start earning up to more like 50 or 60K, and again, your your tax return is really simple. It's just PAYG. You've got one source of income. You don't do anything fancy. You could probably do it yourself again too. But if you start to do anything, like you said, more complex, anything, you own a few shares, ETFs, you've got this, that, and the other, you, or you're starting a business. that it costs to get your tax return done or to just sit down with an accountant for half an hour, it can sometimes be like the best money you spend Mm. because they'll tell you what you need to do. And that can save you a lot of money in the long run. Like we had, I saw two or three different accountants when I set up the company. I probably should have seen a few more to be honest because it was just getting the right foundations in place. Yeah. So that's for like if you start to do anything a little bit more romantic with your money. But if you just, you know, you're keeping it, if you've got a lower income, you uh, you have you have a basic understanding of tax, you could probably do it yourself. But I'm of the opinion that if you need good advice, you should pay for it. You should really pay for it, uh, especially when something like tax because it's, it's almost so black and white. 
that it's very easy to get caught out doing the wrong thing. Mm. Okay, information regarding investments and personal tax returns. This is the second part of the question. Do I need to provide income statements as my portfolio increases or only when stocks are sold? So there's two questions there. Do I need to provide income statements as my portfolio increases? Yeah. So if you're a new investor, you might not have realized there's a a bit of um, government tax things to be aware of. So I guess the first one is if you're investing in a share or ETF, like we talked about earlier, that pays you a dividend or distribution at some point during the financial year, you do have to declare that on your tax return. So, I mean, some of the ATO, it pre-fills that data now. So the ATO will probably know if you have a an ETF distribution that you were paid during the year, but you also receive tax statements from the provider at the end of financial year. So you can give them to your accountant or if you're doing it yourself, you can just plug those numbers in. Uh, And the other thing to be aware of, if you do sell some shares during the year, uh, you may need to report a capital gain or a capital loss. Um, so you get a got to keep. Um, I think we talked about it maybe in the last Q and A about the paperwork situation. Yeah. You've got to keep good records of when you buy things and when you sell things and how much you did it for and what date that happened. You do, mate. Mm. So you don't pay tax every time you buy and sell. You pay it at June thirtieth, mm. just like you pay everything else. And you have two types of tax primarily. There's two. I mean, there's many, but there's two types primarily that you'll deal with, which is income tax. And capital gains tax. Yes. Capital gains tax is only paid when you buy or sell and it's paid in the year that it is incurred. So if you sell today, it's March. Um, if you sell today, you'll that will go on your tax return for this year, ending June. That's how it works. Income tax, it can get a little bit blurry with shares because if you're a day trader, Kate, you might actually have some of your gains recorded as income because they're short-term gains. Mm. So it's basically the same thing as income anyway. So keep that in mind. But you don't have to worry about every time you buy or sell going to the ATO with a piece of paper to say, hey, this is what I did. But you just need to keep a record of it. And then when your stocks are sold, uh, you need to keep a record of that too. And after the tax year, like in July through to September, you might get uh, a document from your ETF provider or your managed fund provider to say, as you said, this is what your capital gains are. This is what your income tax is. You need to tell this to your accountant or put it into the system. How can people manage that? Just quickly, Kate, what is a, what are a couple of resources you can use to get on top of those buys and sells? The first thing would be to have a folder in your email inbox for XYZ broker contract notes uh, and then XYZ tax uh, documents. So that's I always just drag everything across as soon as it's received because I know that I'm going to need to find it eventually and it's a good way to just go through it all. Also, you could keep a Google Sheet or a spreadsheet um, documenting your buys and sells, or you could use an online platform uh, like ShareSite. We are not sponsored, but I do use that personally, and it's very helpful in in sorting out my mess that I end up creating every year. So, uh, and you can, yeah, I think there's other platforms as well that people use. Two other things you might, if you're like, if you're with someone like Comsec or whatever, just look at the, um, the reports that they issue. You can look in there and it'll have a report of what your transactions were and whatever. Uh, another thing is make sure the share registry has your tax file number or the brokerage account that passes the tax file number across has it. Tax file number is really important. Mm. That's your primary key. It is what identifies you as the owner uh, for tax reasons so that if you do lose track of things, like Kate said, you can go to that website, put in your tax file number and it'll be like, hey, Kate, you still have shares from back in the day. Here they are. And you know. 
Okay, Kate, there's one final question. Lucky number 11, what is it? Yes. This is a very hard question. This one uh, animated you before, Owen, but um, this is a great one from our Facebook group. ETFs versus Slicks. Should you have both in your portfolio? And if you had to only pick one, which one would you pick? Finger licking good or WTF is an ETF? I would say it's a false choice, Kate. Don't make me choose. (laughs) People say you need to do this. If you could only pick one, which would you have? That's a false choice. You don't have to make that decision. Own them all if you want to own them all. Another thing that people say is you need to buy low and sell high. That's a false choice. You don't have to make two decisions. You can just buy low and buy again or buy and that's it and hold on to it. You, Our brains and people around us sucker us into thinking that we have to make decisions and we have to choose between things. Oftentimes, you can have more than one. I don't eat just cheeseburgers. I eat hamburgers. I eat burritos. I eat everything. Uh, it's the same with shares. Accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. Just buy assets that increase in value. Okay, so now you want my real answer, the answer that actually is what you asked me for. So if I had to pick one, it would be an ETF Mm. in a normal market. So when, like now, for example. However, there are times when owning a lick can be to your advantage. I'm just going to digress really quickly. But basically, when you go into your brokerage account and you see the value of an ETF. You see it there. It says the Vanguard ETF is $10 and you can buy it for $10. The difference between an ETF at $10 and a lick at $10 is sometimes when you buy the, the lick, what you're getting is not $10 of value. Sometimes you're paying more than what's actually inside. And sometimes you're paying less than what's actually inside. So uh, we've covered this before, but during the global financial crisis, the price of a lick that you could buy it for in your brokerage account and what was actually inside, which is known as the NTAA mm. or net tangible assets, was disconnected. So the price was, say, $10, but what was inside was worth $15. So that's the difference between a lick and an ETF. They can break apart the price that you pay and what's actually inside. Now, in normal times, a lick is trading at a more expensive price than what's actually inside. So you're paying more than what's actually the worth of the things inside, right? But an ETF is almost perfectly, almost always perfectly at the same price so that the price matches the NTA. But during the GFC, there were some investors, and I interviewed some of them. Tony Hansen is a good example. If you go back and listen to the Australian Investors podcast with Tony Hansen, he talks about this. During the GFC, he was able to buy licks for 60 cents on the dollar. So yeah, that's like a catchphrase for so many people that love the share market but don't really understand it. 60 cents on the dollar. Imagine picking up a dollar and you only had to put down 60 cents and you could do that again and again and again. Well, you could do that during the GFC with licks. You could see what's inside. You knew, huh, that's worth a dollar, but the price is only 60 cents. I'll just keep buying it and then wait for it to go back up. And that's what they did. So in a market crash, I might be inclined to look at licks, but during a normal market, ETFs. Show me yours, I'll show you mine. My portfolio currently has no licks in it, but it's got ETFs in there. So I guess my only issue, my main issue with licks is that they do have to market themselves. So if no one knows about the lick um, and no one's aware of that company and that it exists, then no one thinks to uh, buy it and then it can lower liquidity as well. So I know licks have been pretty popular in sort of my parents' and grandparents' generation, but I don't know. What, what if 
looks just go out of fashion. I don't know. That's probably well, they'd still be there, right? So you would still own shares in the company. So the lick owns things. So you would still be an owner of that thing that owns things. So if they decided to close up shop, they would have to sell all the stuff that they own and return that money to you. But you're right. Like licks are a little bit more complex in the fact, in the sense that there's kind of like an, an investor that's behind the lick. Like they manage the lick. Whereas an ETF is normally like passive and it kind of just does what it says on the tin. You've got to keep in mind though, 20 or 30 years, Kate, that we didn't have the sophistication with technology that we do now that has created an ETF. So we have like automation and technology that calculates what's inside the ETF instantaneously. Whereas 20 or 30 years ago, we just didn't have that type of um, technology available. So that's why the, the older generation typically has more licks because they were more prevalent and easier to manage back then versus today when, you know, we can automate a lot of that sort of stuff. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I'd just be interested to know if more closed down over the next sort of 30 years as um, people move towards ETFs and other products. I think they will. Yeah, I think more, like they're going to be fewer licks coming to the market at the very least and ETFs are just going to keep growing. Yeah. Um, We know that from all the surveys that we looked at last week. Kate, uh, I was even thinking maybe maybe not next month or maybe soon, we can stream this Q&A straight into the Facebook group. And we can answer questions on the fly. <laughs> Owen thinks he can cool. work out the technology. So we'll see what we, we can do. Will, yeah, we could do it. Come on. With the right attitude, anything is possible. So I reckon maybe we might be able to do it next month. We might be able to stream straight into the, the group and answer your questions. So if you're part of the group, fantastic. If you're not, get in there. It's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Rask Australia. There'll be a link in the show notes. Kate, the fire course. One last plug for the fire course. Yeah, if you haven't enrolled already for the awesome Financial Independence Retire Early course, which is all about taking control of your time and money, designing your ideal lifestyle um, and making really positive choices for you, it's a lot more than just uh, what is shares and what is ETFs. Um, And I think it's a really good sort of all-encompassing theory to uh, apply to your life, even if you aren't that interested in some of the nitty-gritty details. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes, but I'd love for you to enroll and let me know what you think. We've already had some great feedback so far. So when we uh, iterate on version two, we'll, um, we'll be able to include some of that as well. So it's definitely a work in progress, but uh, I'd love to know how you go. So definitely check out the show notes and I'll link all of the resources from today's episode in there as well. Yeah. it's And you said it's a work in progress. It's epic. It's great. It's fantastic. It's wonderful, Kate, that you've done it. So, and you've taken months to do it. You've put in a lot of effort. I loved it. I took the course. I emailed it out to our uh, people on our newsletter too, and I uh, shared that resource about the 10 things you can do to align your spending with your happiness and joy. It's such a powerful thing. Mm. All the stuff that you spend money on, it's incredible compared to what actually brings you happiness. So, it's just an exercise in psychology, in life, and in money. So check out the FIRE course. We'll put the links in the show notes. And pretty much as always, it's free. That's kind of what we do. <laughs> so it's free. Check it out. Enroll. you got nothing to lose. Cool. Kate, as always, thanks for taking the time to sit down with me and join me on the show. Great to chat, Owen. And thanks to all our listeners for sending in your questions. Mm-hmm. More next month. Let's do it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community 
by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.